Section 21 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 14. End of Reign of William I. 1073-1087. We must now return to the year 1071, the date of the final conquest of the country. William was not fated to enjoy a lengthy peace, and no sooner were the Anglo-Saxon revolts crushed than troubles arose from different quarters. The conquest of Maine had been accomplished just before William's invasion of England, but his rule was most distasteful to the people of that province and they now took the opportunity of his absence to abandon their allegiance. They first appealed to one of the daughters of their last Count Herbert, who came north with her husband, Azzo, Marquis of Este, and occupied the country. This, however, did not satisfy the townsmen of Le Mans, the capital. They had long suffered from the arbitrary rule of their petty feudal lords, and were anxious to establish their liberties on some more secure basis. Accordingly, they formed themselves into a municipality or commune, bound themselves to maintain their newborn freedom, and again fell back upon their old overlord, the Count of Anjou, who thus once more ruled in Maine. The news at once brought William across the channel. Folk was tardy in his assistance, and the rebels, to escape the wasting of their lands, surrendered the town and acknowledged Robert, William's eldest son, as their count. Still, William dared not crush out the spirit of municipal freedom. He promised to observe their privileges, and Le Mans, losing her independence, retained her civic rights to become one of the earliest privileged communes of northern France. At the Treaty of Blanchelande, which followed between Folk and William, Robert consented to hold the county as a fief of Anjou. From this petty quarrel on the continent, William was recalled by an outbreak of his feudal barons at home in 1075. Their rebellion opens a new phase of English history. It was the first of those attempts on the part of the feudal nobles to throw off the stern rule of their newfound kings, which troubled England till the reign of Henry II. The actual companions of William in his invasion had submitted to him, but they were now fast dying out, and it is their sons who now rebel against the stern rule of the conqueror. The earldom of Hereford was now in the hands of Roger de Breteuil, the son of William's trusted adviser and justiciary, William Fitz Osborne. That of Norfolk was in the hands of Ralph Guader. These two earls, in common with many of the Norman nobles, had long chafed under the strict rule of William and longed to establish their feudal independence in England. William, moreover, had forbidden a marriage between Ralph and Roger's sister, probably because he feared the result of such an alliance. This filled up the measure of their discontent. In spite of William's refusal, they solemnized the marriage. At the bridal feast, they entered into a conspiracy and gained the assistance of Waldioff, Earl of Northampton, the only remaining Anglo-Saxon Earl who had been treated kindly by William and given the king's niece Judith in marriage. Their intentions are clearly seen from the agreement made between them. England was to be restored to the condition it was in during King Edward's reign. One of the three conspirators should be king, the other two earls who of course would enjoy practical independence. 
The attempt, however, entirely failed. The Anglo-Saxons knew their interests too well to join the rebellion, and it was speedily suppressed. Ralph fled to Brittany, and Roger was taken prisoner to end his days in captivity. The fate of Waltheof was more tragic. It does not appear that he gave more than a tacit acquiescence to the conspiracy. Indeed, when the rebellion broke out, he betrayed the plot to Lanfranc, and was for the moment pardoned. But soon after the accusation was again revived, and he was put to death. Some said at the instigation of his unnatural wife. This, the only political execution of William's reign, has been bitterly laid to his account. It was cruel, it was perhaps hardly just, but no doubt William was prompted to the act by political motives. It was an act of policy to destroy the last chief of the Anglo-Saxon race, the last leader to whom they could look. But Waltheof was looked upon as a national saint by the conquered people, and the later troubles of William's reign were by them considered as the vengeance of God upon the king's tyranny. For here the prosperity of William's reign ceased. Hitherto he had been successful in all his wars and in every scheme he undertook. From this date, failures began to thicken around him while his character darkened as life drew to a close. His temper waxed harsher, his yoke lay heavier on his subjects, his craving for money grew, and England suffered greatly. Next year followed the revolt of his son Robert, which again assumed the character of a rebellion of the feudal nobles, 1077 to 1080. Before invading England, William had promised to resign Normandy to his eldest son in the event of his success. This he probably did to allay the jealousy of Philip of France, but it was only a nominal promise, and when Robert claimed its fulfillment, William curtly answered that he did not intend to throw off his clothes till he went to bed. On this, Robert rose in arms and was aided by Philip of France and many of the young nobility who seized the opportunity once more to establish their independence. Robert of Belem, son of Roger Montgomery of Shrewsbury, and William of Bretoy, son of William Fitzosborne and brother of the old conspirator Roger, were two most important men, both sons of William's most trusted advisers. In the action which ensued at Gerberois, William, unhorsed and wounded by his son, was forced to seek a reconciliation, to which Robert, who was struck with horror at his own deed, consented. William's half-brother Odo next disturbed the realm in 1082. To this man, Bishop of Bayeux, had been given the county palatine of Kent, but even this did not satisfy his ambitious spirit. He aimed at becoming Pope and prepared an army in England to enforce his claim. His turbulent and cruel conduct had long caused trouble to William, and now he was arrested. This arrest might have been considered an encroachment on the privileges of ecclesiastics, who claimed to be tried in their own courts, granted them by William himself. William therefore declared him arrested not as bishop but as earl, and did not release him till he himself was on his deathbed. In 1085, William was threatened by danger from another quarter. The kings of Norway and Denmark had looked with jealousy upon the success of the Norman William. Olaf of Norway might still have remembered the compact between Tostig and Harald Hardrada, while Canute, who then ruled in Denmark, 
though allied by marriage with William through his wife, the daughter of Robert Le Frison, Count of Flanders, had already made settlements in England. Canute now prepared for a last attempt, and gaining the aid of Olaf and the Count of Flanders, threatened William with a formidable coalition. William, to meet the danger, hastily levied foreign mercenaries, and to secure the fidelity of his subjects, exacted the famous oath of homage from all his subjects at the Council of Serum. Fortunately, however, the expedition was checked by contrary winds. Olaf was bribed by William, and in the following year Canute fell a victim to a rebellion of his own subjects, caused by discontent at his hasty innovations. From this time the Danes lost the command of the sea. The reforms inaugurated by Canute brought their institutions into conformity with the rest of Europe, and Denmark troubled her no more. The Danish invasion probably hastened the completion of the Doomsday Survey, one of the most important acts of William's reign. This great work completes the organization of William. 1. It was intended to serve as the basis of taxation. 2. As the authority by which all disputes concerning land might be settled. 3. As a muster-roll of the nation. As a census, it is not exhaustive. The three northern counties and parts of Westmoreland, Lancashire, and Monmouthshire, probably on account of their disturbed state, are not mentioned. Nor are London and Winchester and a few other towns, probably because of charters of immunity previously granted. But as far as it goes, it is very exact and correct. From its pages, the conqueror could at a glance discover the state of his revenues, the wealth, the consequence of every personage in his kingdom. No nation in Europe possesses such a monument of its early state, nor can later times point to many achievements like it. The means by which the information was to be collected were these. Commissioners went forth into every shire, and there calling the sheriffs, the parish priests, the reeves of the townships, and men of each manor before them, required them on their oath to answer these questions. What is the name of your township? Who was lord thereof, bishop or abbot, in the days of good King Edward? How many thanes, how many freemen, how many villains are there? How many acres and what their value in King Edward's time? What their value now? What has each freeman? How many oxen, how many cows, how many sheep, how many swine? The information thus collected was then put into a shape and called the Doomsday Book, and with such activity was the work carried on that it was completed within a year. Loud were the complaints throughout the land, and in some places riots ensued. The people considered it an arbitrary invasion of their rights. It is a shame, they said, that the king should pry into each man's means, a shame even to tell of such tyranny though the king thought no shame in it. Such is always the cry of the opponents of order, and the independence of the English resented, as they have ever done, the interference of government. But their complaints were ill-founded. It was no tyranny, but the work of a great organization, the essential preliminary and accompaniment of strong government. On its completion, a great assembly was held in Salisbury Plain, when the ordinance before mentioned was passed, ordering each freeman to take an oath of allegiance directly to the king himself. In the following year, 1087, a quarrel broke out with Philip for the possession of the Vexin. 
This had been granted by Henry I to William's father in return for the aid given by the Norman duke to Henry when fighting for his crown. But Philip now invaded it. William, irritated by a coarse jest of the French king, ravaged the country and burnt the town of Mantes. As he proudly rode over the ruins of the town, his horse stumbled on some hot ashes, and the rider thrown violently on the pummel sustained a fatal injury. Carried to Rouen, he lingered long enough to declare his wishes. Robert was given Normandy, and the lands which William had gained by inheritance. William Rufus, his second son, he named as successor to those lands which he had gained himself, while to Henry, his third son, he left a present of five thousand pounds of silver. With the prophetic promise that he, becoming greater than either of his brothers, would one day possess far greater and ampler power. Then, turning to his confessor, he deplored the evils of his past life. No tongue can tell, said he, the deeds of wickedness I have perpetrated in my weary pilgrimage of toil and care. He deplored his birth, born to warfare, polluted with bloodshed from his earliest years, his trials, the base ingratitude he had met with. He also extolled his own virtues, praised his conscientious appointments in the church and his alms, and then, freeing all the state captives with the prophecy of the ills that Odo by his ambition would bring upon his country, passed away at the hour of prime. Thus the great conqueror was at last at rest. The scene of his death was a sad satire on the power of man. His sons, eager only to gain their appointed shares, departed before their father's eyes were closed. Rufus to England, Robert to Normandy, Henry to seize the treasure and the corpse of the strong man who but a few minutes before struck fear into all who angered him was now shamefully despoiled and stripped and hurried almost without decent burial into its unkingly grave, the owner of the soil demanding his price before he allowed the body to be buried. A great man thus passed away, a man who did great things for England. In William, the Norman character found its greatest representative. To the consummate powers of a general, he added the subtle skill of a diplomatist and the foresight of a statesman. Born a bastard and left fatherless at an early age, he triumphed over all his foes in Normandy and strongly organized his dukedom. Then, passing from Normandy to England, he changed the name of bastard for that of conqueror, and in welding the Saxon and Norman institutions together, he illustrated the Norman talent for adaptation by his wise and thoughtful policy. He reorganized our whole political life, saved England from the ills which were eating at its core, gave it unity and strength, and first made it a great power in Europe. Yet these great qualities of his were stained by great blemishes. William was an irresponsible despot, and his people found him so. To the Anglo-Saxons, although he continued the old national and constitutional forms, and left to the people the enjoyment of their own law, he was stark and stern. The form of their government remained, but the spirit was changed, and many are the complaints on account of the fiscal and other oppressions. His rule was that of a wise and wary, a strong and resolute, an arbitrary though not a wanton despot. He marked out his goal, and no scruples of conscience or mercy stayed him from attaining it. There was nothing which he would not do to gain his end, 
and much was the suffering he thereby brought on both Anglo-Saxon and Norman. He was a man born to be feared, not to be loved, and when life had departed, and the great conqueror's hand lay cold, the indignities which mean wretches heaped upon the lifeless corpse bore witness to the fact that fear once gone, hatred arose and drove out even the sentiment of respect. End of section 21